are listening to Win Win, a podcast brought to you by the global nonprofit organization Win Women and in Innovation. Each episode features inspiring innovators from the startup world, innovation consultancies, and Fortune 500 companies who share their innovation secrets and career trajectories every Monday. As for me, I'm your host, Zoya Kozakov, global product lead at Win by Night and product manager by day. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Win-Win Podcast. This week, we have another startup founder, Jennifer Smith of Scribe, who has raised $30 million to tackle the problem of knowledge and process sharing and is using technology to create those efficiencies. Jennifer is a total star. Her background is super impressive, and you will hear more about it in the conversation itself, so I do want to get right into it. But a quick call out on this conversation is how electric and energizing Jennifer is. To me, she epitomizes and really legitimizes the value of going through large companies and learning through and at those companies before starting your own venture. I've spoken about this before on the podcast, but the path to innovation is really not linear and you can be a serial entrepreneur or you can be someone who does things in a more traditional way and then takes that leap of faith. I share that because as someone who is really passionate about innovation and building new things, I want to see women who have gone through the corporate route before launching their own thing because that's where I am in my career. And as much as I host this podcast, I'm thrilled to see myself in some of these guests and it opens my mind to what the possibilities are no matter where I am today or where I was yesterday. And so hopefully that does resonate with some of you tuning in. With that, let's hear from Jennifer Smith, the founder and CEO of Scribe. Hi, Jennifer. Welcome to the Win-Win Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here. So, so excited to have you here, especially because truth be told, I actually came across your LinkedIn profile about a year ago, and I just have a screenshot in my phone of your profile, and I was like, this is somebody I really want to talk to. And so really, really excited to have you here. But you know what, what really drew me about your profile, and I guess about you in that moment, was that I found it really interesting that you came from this world of consulting, which is literally known as being at the helm of creating processes and integrating frameworks. And then you also have this amazing technology, venture capital, I guess, second life of a career. And now, boom, you are now essentially fighting the bureaucracy that's often created within the first part of your career. I mean, I see a really interesting dichotomy there, but I guess before we get into Scribe and all the awesome things that it does, I'd really love to know how you approached making the decisions to go from one role to another and what your considerations were along the way, especially prior to founding Scribe. Yeah, uh, there's that famous Steve Jobs quote that um, sometimes you can connect the dots only looking backwards. And it it feels that way now when I look at everything. I can tell you a pretty clear story about how it all kind of came together. It did not feel that way as I was living Mm -hmm. it. I think most people would say that. I spent the first seven years of my career as a consultant at McKinsey, working mostly with um, financial services and technology firms in org and ops practices. So anyone who's ever done that kind of work or worked with those kinds of people know a big part of it is you're literally going into op centers all day and you're looking over the shoulders of people and you're asking them what they do and you're trying to find opportunities to make it better. 
And a lot of it for me, because I was coming from an organ and ops focus was, you know, sitting down and asking people like, what, what are you doing? Especially the best performers. What are you doing differently than everyone else? And we would write that down in PowerPoint and we would sell that back to our clients for a lot of money. And I remember thinking at the time, like, gosh, there has to be a better way to do this. <laughs> there has mm-hmm, to be something more mm-hmm. efficient than, you know, some version of 27-year-old Jennifer with a Lenovo ThinkPad, like trying to figure out how to make this place better, right? Shout out, um, Lenovo. Sponsor us. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, I got really interested. I, I went to, to business school, came back to the firm, continued there for a bit and got really interested in technology. I was living in Silicon Valley at that time. And, you know, I think it's it's sometimes hard to live here and not get bit by the technology bug. I had mm-hmm. many friends who were building and investing in, in early stage stuff. And I just saw the level of excitement that they had around what they were working on. And so I said, gosh, it feels like there's something there. Everyone I meet who's in tech, early stage tech, like just feels like my tribe of people. I don't, I don't really know why, but this feels like something I want to do. And so I made the decision to leave consulting and go into venture capital because to me, it was a really great way to, to kind of get my feet wet and try to even understand mm-hmm. like what excites me. And we can talk more about, about what that was like, but it was a, an intellectual playground to say the least. It was just such a mm-hmm. fun vantage point to meet so many interesting people in tech and pretty much learn for the first time, almost to restart my career. Like what, what is this world? What does this mean? Mm-hmm. And and I also think about the fact that these two industries and even just McKinsey as a firm and Greylock Partners, you know, these are industries that are typically not female-led or female-oriented. When you were actually growing within both of those roles, did you consider how your own theses differed from what was really best practice in those places and and not just from a gender perspective but as a whole how did you really analyze the spaces that you were in in those exact moments not really just retrospectively yeah it's, a, it's an interesting question i mean I think i showed up at mckinsey when i was you know 21 so i, I knew I didn't know anything else. That that was my only frame of reference. Actually, I was 20 when I showed up in McKinsey. So really, there was like no other frame of reference for me. And it's interesting, the gender balance, you know, coming in an analyst class is 50-50. And then as you stay and grow more senior, I think this is true of many places, you know, that, that starts to become pretty imbalanced pretty quickly. And so there starts to be a lot more attention all of a sudden where you get invited to, you know, women in blank events and, you know, Mm. people talking about what does it mean to be a woman at this place? And so, you know, I would say it was a big shift for me. My early 20s, I never thought about it. My late 20s, I started saying, oh, I'm looking around and there's actually not very many other women in in this world. And then certainly by the time I hit my 30s, I, you know, would look around and say, wow, there there really aren't a lot of other women. I'm the only one. (laughs) I'm the only one oftentimes. Mm -hmm. And and even more true, I'd say, going for me from consulting to, to venture capital, I think tech has um, really put an emphasis on, you know, trying to bring more women in venture capital. Certainly we've all read about in the news over the last year after last decade has thought a lot more about this. And so it's, it's great to see that change. But, uh, you know, for me, it was something I never really thought about. And then something that was sort of pervasive every day, but you sort of looked at it and said, well, I don't, I don't know what the opposite would feel or look like. And so this sort of, you know, is what it is. And I'm just going to focus on, you know, doing what I want to do and where you find opportunities to connect with other women. I would get way more excited when we had a female founder come pitch us because it, it didn't happen very often. Right. <laughs> and so you sort of stand up and pay attention and, and sort of say like, gosh, what more can I do to help you? Is there like a little more that I can do in this instance? 
Yeah, for sure. I always talk about something maybe a little controversial, but it's like this notion of being an accidental feminist. Um, and even, you know, in various stages of my career, when I would bring up gender, not even in relation to the workplace, people would be like, oh, here she goes talking about gender. And I remember just being like, I, I don't really like want to have this conversation either. I don't want to be the gender person or the woman in tech, woman in product, woman in fintech, yet I'm inherently, or of course, woman in innovation, but I'm inherently drawn to these communities and I'm a part of them because I think knowing that myself and others do at a certain point come to this place where you can no longer ignore it, you have a choice of rather like acknowledging it and trying to change it and help other women, or you essentially have to try to ignore the problem which may work, but is not always feasible. So I, I think that that's a really interesting point of view that you're sharing out. And I think a lot of women really feel that way, but don't really don't really always know how to grapple with it. I remember my first Women in Tech that I, event that I went to, and it was maybe, you know, I don't know, two years into my time in tech. Mm -hmm. And it was, a, I remember it was a Friday afternoon and it was about 150 women and it was just the most fun I had <laughs> probably mm -hmm. in those two years professionally. I remember coming home and stayed extra late until the end and I just had like this giant smile on my face and my husband was like, what happened today? You seem so incredibly happy. And I was like, you know, I didn't, I didn't realize almost that I was missing that connection until I had it. And just to exactly. be surrounded by this many women who were all doing really interesting, exciting things. And just to see that representation, you don't realize often day to day if you miss it. But to me, having everyone together like that, I think highlighted it. Yeah. And, and it's a big reason why I've, you know, throughout the various stages in my career have stayed involved in these communities, even though there's a lot of time commitment and different things involved with even just running this podcast. Um, it's just so exciting and, and really exhilarating to have the opportunity to, to chat to other women. Looking at your career and kind of the space that you ended up in, you you talked about how you were working at McKinsey, but then you also jumped into the venture capital world. Both things to me are external kind of service model, mm -hmm. if you will, right? So it's very different from being in-house. And I actually came from digital advertising um, on the agency side and, and brand management on the agency side. And then I switched my career into um, in-house. And again, not to knock down agencies or consultants, I was like, oh my goodness, it is so much harder to actually build the stuff and do the stuff and be held accountable for this stuff rather than either critique it or consult on it or offer a PowerPoint or just not write a check, right? And so, you know, really curious to think about what are the the initial learnings that you've had into moving into a founder and and also coming from that consulting and, and venture capital background. Yeah, you know what I, I what you said completely resonates with me. I was I was kind of smirking the entire time because I, I would say the same thing um, for me. I think uh, coming from a consulting and VC background was really great training across mm -hmm. a number of different things. I'd say one of the big ones was just being able to pattern match across seeing, you know, in venture capital, here are the types of companies that have gotten started. Here's what's worked. Here's what hasn't worked. Here are a lot of the common mistakes that people make. There are many different ways to build a successful company. What do some of those different ways look like? What do I want to pick and choose for myself, you know, now, now that I'm running a company? I think similarly in consulting, having a lot of empathy for our customers that we serve. I mean, sort of the, the idea of what we do at Scribe came from my time in consulting and what I saw 
you know, a lot of my clients grapple with. <clears throat> and then when I was in venture capital, I spent a lot of my time actually talking to buyers of enterprise software. Um, mm. I counted when I left, I talked to over 1,200 CIO, CTO, heads of innovation type folks to try to understand what problems are you trying to solve today? Where where are you placing your bets in technology? Where right. are you seeing gaps? What do you wish existed? And so in many ways, what we've created with Scribe is just a direct response to a lot of the most common themes and challenges I'd heard in those conversations. The reason that I also personally decided to found a company is I kind of hit that point uh, in my life where it sounds a little cheesy, but it's true. I started reflecting on, you know, what what do I want my legacy to be in life? Like, what what's important to me? What do I want to be able to point to at the end of my career and say I mm-hmm. did that and feel really proud of it? And you know, I'm I'm proud of the companies that we backed when I was in venture capital, and you know, I'm proud of the my clients who were able to be successful in what they were doing. But a lot of those things I feel like would have happened even if I hadn't been there, if I'm being honest with myself, right? And so to me, what the, you know, what, how do I want to have impact in the world question really came down to was I want to build something. I want to build something that hopefully endures beyond me and has really big impact on a lot of people who use it, whatever that ends up looking like. It's it's a really interesting problem to grapple with. I I didn't come from the corporate America world or the I'm now at my second financial services uh, large bank institution. And something I think a lot about is, damn, wh- when did I become this person? But that identity crisis aside, something that I've actually realized that's made me stay and that is so, so exciting about working at those companies is just the fact that my product is being used by 60 million people off the bat. It's been such a great perk that every time I consider like, is this, you know, really how I want to be running my career? Or is this the right way for me to do things? I'm just very, very grateful for that. But I also have been on the startup side where I I know that you really get to make the rules from start to finish. So would love to hear about that moment where, you know, you've made the leap, you've decided to solve this problem that you are now solving. Um, Tell me about that. And then I'd really love to also hear about just building the company from ground up and and where do you even begin? Yeah, I so I thought about, okay, I want to I want to build something um, like go into that operator role as you were describing. Um, What is it that I want that to be? What should that look like? I had a professor in business school who said, find the thing about yourself that you're always apologizing for and find a way to make that your career, find a way to get paid for it. And I've always been very obsessed with efficiency. I'm always trying to find the most efficient way to do something. And going back to, to what I saw in consulting, like a lot of my clients would work incredibly inefficiently and they were constantly trying to find ways to be better at their processes. And then when I was in VC, like thought about all the conversations that I had with, you know, mostly people in Fortune 500 companies were, were the ones who who came and talked to us. And it was this very similar idea of, gosh, we have this huge scale. We've got probably tens, hundreds of thousands of people, uh, employees, team members who are, you know, creating and servicing products for millions of consumers or, you know, thousands of businesses on the other side. And we want to get better at at how we're doing that. What does that look like? And so for me, I just became really obsessed with this problem of you've got all of these knowledge workers all day long who are sitting nine to five in all of these companies, like trying to create value. And everyone's reinventing the wheel a little bit. 
because most of the way that work gets done in a company, like the processes, it still mostly just lives in people's heads, right? I mean, I'll go and ask like, hey, you know, what percentage of your processes do you think are actually written down and up to date? The answer is usually like less than 1% of the true work that's ever being done, right? And so it's really sort of this like tribe, you know, mental um, oral tradition, tribal knowledge of the way that it get pa- gets passed down. And I think we've always just assumed that's the way of working, right? You want to learn how to do something in a new job or you have a question, you have to ask someone, you know, maybe you're sitting next to uh, someone who's more experienced and you're popping your head over and saying like, can I watch you do that thing? Or can you show me how to do that thing? Remind me how to do this again. And I think we just assume that's just the way that that work should be done, but it's incredibly inefficient. Um, There have been some really great studies um, that both our customers have done and and folks like McKinsey have done that suggest that that's anywhere between 15 to 25% of any given knowledge worker's week (laughs) is just asking people, can you show me how to do this? Or trying to find that info on their own. That's a day a week. That's a huge, huge cost that I think we just assume is the cost of doing business because there's no better way right now. And so we looked at it and said, gosh, if we can take some of that away, if we can make knowledge more accessible, more democratized within organizations or across organizations, like could that be a huge unlock for you know at least corporate America, if not the world, uh, in the way that all of these totally. people are spending all of their time? And so- I just got really obsessed with this question of like, how do we make like your average person working in a big company, like how do we make their day-to-day better? How do we make them better at what they do? And can we do that in a way that's great, not just for them, but then when you add that up across all the people working in a company, like make that just a huge win for that company too. Beyond. I mean, I literally was laughing to myself because I had two meetings today for somebody to explain to me how to onboard a like an application onto a governance process. And ultimately, what's interesting about your company is that processes are fundamental to scaling something and to running something. Yet if your entire role becomes about the process, then you're actually not innovating. So you're kind of saying, let me get this annoyance that's also really, really important out of your hands so you can focus on, I guess, the real stuff. But I I guess with that, I imagine there's a lot of ownership that people feel in saying, I want to be the one to define the process and document how it's being communicated. So as you were designing Scribe to fix this process problem, how did you design the solution in a way that really addresses both managing how people currently feel about processes and the way that you could solve this process bogging down problem? Yeah, it's a great question. I don't think most people think too much about processes, the people who are doing them, right? They just sort of say, hey, I, I know I have to get this thing done. And then there are people within companies who think about process improvement, right? How do I get people better at, at what they're doing? The content of that process, like the the substance of what is actually getting done, still just mostly lives in the head of the person who's doing that work, the SME, right? right? And if you want to pull that out of their head, you really only have two options right now. You either tell them, 
hey, can you write down what you know how to do? Here's a wiki or a document. Like, please literally write detailed procedure guides, SOPs, desktop procedures, whatever word it is you use to describe them. Or or maybe you say, hey, I'm going to hire like a consultant or someone like 27-year-old Jennifer with a Lenovo ThinkPad to to come and write it down for you, right? But in both of those instances, it's incredibly manual and it's not actually advancing the work. To your point, it's, exactly. it's like the, the stuff you have to do to then be able to do the work. And so it's not very much fun, right? Most, most people don't really want to st- take time to write down everything that they know how to do. And so as a result, you just don't get a lot of this information that's captured. And then for the people who are, you know, in process improvement, for example, like they're, they're kind of trying to play a tug of war battle of, hey, wait, can you help me understand what you're doing? And that's person right. saying, Sure, I'm happy to, but then I also have to be doing the work itself. The actual too. job that you're paying me to do, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so with Scribe, we said, what if those things could be one and the same? What if we could use technology to watch someone do the work, do the actual content, and then automatically create documentation on what that process is? What if process documentation just became digital exhaust, just the byproduct of people doing their normal work? What if you could then all of a sudden get all of this documentation around how work is being done within a company in a way that didn't take away any of that sneeze time from doing that actual process? And so that's that whole the whole idea we have around Scribe, which is let's make it really easy and fast, incredibly low friction, incredibly easy for people who are doing work every day, everyone in a company whose fingers on keyboard all day long. Let's make it so they can be automatically creating process documentation. And then what can you start to do once you now have all of this information and all of this data around how work is actually being done? Yeah, it's it's a really incredible product. And I can just say, like, one of the things that I hugely applaud you for is I looked at your website. You're a three-year company. I imagine a company doesn't always prioritize putting together their website at, you know, year three. And we'll talk about your prioritization next. But I saw your website and I was just like, duh this makes so much sense. Why isn't everyone using it? Which is the most exciting, I think, thing about startups that just makes sense, right? Like Uber just makes sense. It's so funny you say that because I'd say one of the most common reactions I get when I, you know, demo scribe or, or share it with folks is they'll say, oh, wow, this seems really obvious. Like, why why doesn't this exist already? Why has yeah. no one pitched this to me before? And, you know, I always chuckle because it it took many years of sort of thinking about the problem and then, you know, a couple years of really building and iterating to get to this experience that now feels like, you know, oh gosh, of course this should have existed. Um, I often think it's when you've got a problem that's hiding in plain sight um, that, you know, no one really thinks about as a problem because you just assume it's the way of being. Like if you if you think about, you know, Uber in the world's pre-Uber I, I didn't sit around thinking, gosh, I have a hard time getting around, but I could tell you so many stories of times I was stranded by the side of the road, like trying to call a cab or call my friend or someone right, to come pick right. me up, right? And you, you just kind of said like, oh, that's, you know, that's just the way life is, right? It's just, it's kind of hard. You got to figure out how to get around. You got to arrange transportation. I think very similarly with Scribe, people say, oh no, well, I just, of course I'm going to have two Zoom meetings today where someone shows me how to do something. That's just Mm -hmm. what work is, right? It's just, of course I'm going to get Slack messages or emails or have to do phone calls where I have to show someone how to do something or I have to try to find answers to these questions. That's just what work is, right? 
and we're here to say no that doesn't actually have to be that way this is it Mm -hmm. this is a problem hiding in plain sight and what I'm hopeful is once people see a solution, they'll now start thinking about all those instances where they had the problem and almost didn't even identify it as one because it, it previously wasn't even thought of as something you could change. Right. And that's where I think, you know, people talk about like consumer research and user research, and I am a big fan. And I think we should be focusing on that exactly. But at the same time, your user isn't going to tell you, you know, there's this like famous Ford quote, quote, right? People said like, make me a faster horse, not a car. I definitely butchered the quote, but I hope you know where I'm going with this. Um, And it's the same thing. People don't often realize that what they're doing is problematic. It's just more about creating the convenience for them. So then in retrospect, they're like, why didn't we always do it that way? But as you, as you moved from very clearly having a product market fit. How did you go about the execution piece? Because obviously you're working in technology from based on your background, I assume you're not technical and you, you've not held more formal product management positions. So how did you really approach getting a product to market and, and what have you learned from it? Yeah. So we were really focused on building an MVP that we could get into people's hands as quickly as possible. To your point, you can do all the user interviews that you want, but if you Mm -hmm. aren't showing someone the thing that they could use, they're going to be talking really at abstract levels. And I'd been having conversations with what are now our, you know, our user, at least user personas for many, many years. So I had a good sense for the problem that I wanted to solve. The question was how, and what does that actually look like? And so we built a very early engineering team and put put out a very basic MVP um, and uh, just released it into the world um, pretty quietly, actually. And we sort of said, like, Let, let's see what happens. And right. we got really great feedback from users, and we just would continue to iterate and change it. And what was really interesting is, you know, we, had, we hadn't done any marketing uh, for the company before this year. Um, and Scribe by itself grew to be in tens of thousands of companies in over 100 countries of people just using the product and sharing it with their friends and using the product and sharing it with their friends. And so our goal was how do we just get as many people using and sharing as possible because that's how we're going to learn the fastest and the quickest from how we see them using it, what they tell us they're interested in, where they're seeing gaps and problems and, and where we think that we can build on that. And, you know, there, there are many different approaches to think about software development and, and who you're building for. We were really focused in building for that end user to start, the person who has to show someone how to do something, the person who's receiving that question. Um, and the, the reason is we said we want this to be the kind of product that people use not because their boss is telling them they have to as part of some kind of deployment, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but because it makes their lives better, because it makes their job a little easier. And so we focused really on two things. One is how do we reduce the cost to using the product? And I don't mean financial. Our product is actually – our basic product is actually free. But I mean the time cost, the effort cost. And so we would clock and watch how long does it take a user from the moment they land on our marketing site to the moment they're able to create and share their first scribe. And we got that down to four minutes for all kinds of people, um, even even folks who don't have – you know who, who are kind of lower on digital literacy. Uh, so let's take that cost down to nearly zero. Just make it as really easy as possible to create and share a scribe. 
and then let's make it as high value as possible for someone, right? And so the process of creating a scribe is you click the record button and you just do your normal process, the thing you would have done anyways, and you click stop record and what it automatically appears is a step-by-step written guide with screenshots showing what you did. And then when we think about what that means for our go-to-market, it continues to be end-user-focused. But now what we see is uh, people in in you know all sizes of companies, from SMBs to the Fortune 50, who will you know reach out to us and say, "Hey, someone sent me a scribe," or "Hey, my colleague mentioned this," or "Hey, we've started using this uh, and it's really great, and we want to talk about what a bigger." you know, a bigger deployment might look like. Um, and I think what what I'm excited to see in software in particular is this movement towards much more bottoms-up adoption within organizations of software. It used to be like your CIO made a, your chief information officer made a, you know, a purchasing decision and then just pushed it across everyone. And what you're seeing now is a lot more tools that are geared towards, you know, the individual worker where now they have a perspective on what they want to be using at work. Um, and it's now designed, we talk about this as a consumerization of software, but it's now designed to just be much more consumer-friendly and look a lot more like the tools that you use in your personal life too, right? That are a lot more accessible, a lot more fun, um, a lot more design forward. Um, so there isn't as much of a gap between what you have when you go home and then the, the clunky tools that you're using when you're at work. I think in order to make your product more platform agnostic, so not making it specific to Google Docs or Excel, you created a browser extension uh, for your Safari or for your Google Chrome or whatever it may be to enable Scribe to work really to meet you where you are and work anywhere. As as you think about your innovation processes, how you are approaching um, which platform and what is a channel to best penetrate consumers and and really what is a platform to best allow you to innovate? Yeah, we we are completely agnostic um, in that um, we have both browser browser extension across all the browsers, major browsers that you'd imagine and mentioned. We also have desktop applications for Windows and Mac. Um, and so what that means is you just download or install Scribe, takes you a minute, and now it'll work across anything that's on your computer. It doesn't matter what mm-hmm, it is, past, mm-hmm. present, or future. And, and that's really important because the tech stack looks really different at different times of companies. I mean, we work with really big banks who run software that they purchased you know, 20 years ago that looks really sure. different, all the way to startups who are working entirely in their browser and in cloud-based SaaS applications, right? And so, mm-hmm. and, and like God knows what's going to come next, right? Um, and, and what future programs are. And so we said, you know, we need to be this off of visually what people are seeing on the screen and be entirely platform agnostic because work can happen in many different places for different kind of workers. Um, and sure. I think this is a, a really important point too, is thinking about meeting people with where they're at and where they're doing work right now. And so we think about that not just with the creation of a scribe, right? Which again, you use a browser desktop application, really doesn't matter. You shouldn't think about it. You just click the record button and do what you normally would be doing. 
But then how do we make it easy for you to be able to share that process documentation? We call that a scribe. How do we make that easy for you to be able to share that scribe in the right context at the right time with the right person? And so that's everything from scribes can be embedded in literally hundreds of different tools um, where maybe you already have people going to get this kind of information to you could you know have that live in your scribe repository yourself to it, um, we have a feature called recommended scribes. So if you go to a website, let's say you go to Salesforce or something, right? Scribe will pop up and have all the scribes that have been created by your coworkers for Salesforce itself. So you don't mm-hmm. even have to leave the application. And I, I hope, I think, I hope this is where you see really <laughs> software headed, which is like, how do we meet you in the place that you're at and where you're working? and adapt to the way that you're doing work today as opposed to forcing you into coming into our ecosystem in our particular way and point of view of working. Totally. And I've been the most guilty of being this person who said, you know, when Steve Jobs did this, this, and this, he started a new marketplace. He started a new this and a new that. And I think, you know, Apple already, or a company like Apple has already sometimes have that advantage of an ecosystem so they can afford to push out something brand new. But I do think that we've moved away from that. Innovation means breaking everything completely as it is to really finding ways to break processes, break customer experiences, but do it in a way that is already really embedded into where you are and partners with other platforms or with other apps. And and that's where I think people really underestimate this idea of don't be scared of building something. If something similar exists, really partner with it. And I know that Loom is, a, you know, you have a partnership with Loom or an integration with Loom onto Scribe. And for those of you who don't know, Loom is like a, a video screen recording app. And I think I, I've definitely used it to share out information about what I'm doing. But instead of saying, well, Loom exists, you actually are partnering with Loom and really innovating that end-to-end experience. And that's because we heard from our users who would say, "Hey, we've we've already uh, we've already created videos on how to do something, whether it's in Loom or, or YouTube or others, just as an right. example, right?" And we love Scribe. Scribe's a great way to communicate this. I've already got some of this existing collateral that I sure. created beforehand. Like, can I bring these things together, right? And so and that's awesome. I think of it very much as like a, a better together story with a lot of things mm-hmm. and. Um, I, I do think Apple's in many ways quite the exception, um, and I think they earned the right to be the exception. I think it's a little dangerous when every company out there says we're going to be like we're Apple, like Apple yeah. and not play well with with any of the stuff that you've got because you know, especially when you think about B two B and working with large companies. I mean, a, a lot of them actually don't run in the Apple ecosystem, yeah, exactly. right? Exactly. That's a big part of, you know, the, the of corporate America of like the nine to five workforce, that's our user base. Um, and so we said like, gosh, you've already invested in all of these tools that you, you know, that you know, and, and hopefully love, or at least like working with every day. And so how do we make you better at using those tools you've already got? Yeah. And to, to your earlier point, Jennifer, when you're a trillion dollar company, you can exclude whoever you want. But I think right now you're, you're thinking of it in the right way. And I think generally it's a really great philosophy of, of better together. So before I do let you go, I'd love to ask one more quick innovation question. And that is, where do you see yourself and your industry one month from now, one year from now and 10 years from now? 
mean, for me personally, I'm still I'm still running Scribe. Uh, th- this is what I want to be doing. I can't imagine doing anything else. Um, for us as a company, you know, we're, we continue to to focus on really like that end user and and growing our our user base and making sure that you know we're adding as much value as we can and. We call them these how-to moments, moments where people are trying to figure out a process or, or teach someone else a process, which we estimate happens about five to 10 times per day <laughs> for your average knowledge worker. Um, and so we have a long way to go before you know we're powering each of those five to 10 per knowledge worker every day. In terms of you know where I, I hope that means our, our industry going, and, and you could probably put us across a, a couple industries, but I'll, I'll put it generally in this idea of sort of like process and knowledge management. I, I hope we move towards a world where the best knowledge that everyone has within a company is really easily surfaced and shared with everyone. So you have variation in performance. And, it, and it, when I say performance, I often just mean like how the work is being done. Um, you've got people who are, you know, executing on processes and they're trying to do it in the best way that they know how to do. But there's usually a best way and not everyone is going to know it for every process. And so what if you had a really easy way to surface the best way. Like what an empowering experience for that individual person. And then like what a huge unlock for a company. Um, So my hope is that you see a lot more of this, you know, democratization and accessibility of knowledge across organizations and and within companies where um, people spend a lot less time explaining to others how to do things and a lot more time actually doing and innovating and executing on those processes. Absolutely. No, thank you so much for the great conversation and insights, Jennifer. I wish you the best of luck with everything you're going to accomplish with Scribe and have already accomplished. And thank you for joining me on the Win Win Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Win Win, brought to you by Win, Women in Innovation, and myself, Zoya Kozakov. If you enjoy this podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit womenininnovation.co to learn more about our organization, programming, and other opportunities. And remember, when women innovate, we all win.